common misconceptions, with dubious biblical support. It all adds up to an urban legend. You know, when it comes to the New Testament, there are lots of these urban legends. We'll explore several and expose them in the light of biblical truth. Plus, bring you up to date on everything newsworthy in the Middle East. We're going to answer some intriguing Bible questions and later enjoy an encouraging devotional reminding us there are no laymen in God's work. Why not enjoy a one-hour flyover of the Middle East with us as you join us for The Land and the Book. Our host, noted Middle East scholar Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Gaker. Good to connect, Charlie. Hey, John, it's always great sitting next to you and uh, talking through what's happening in the Middle East. Well, a lot of people wonder what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important and what does it mean for us, Charlie? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, thanks, Charlie. And we're pretty excited about a book blast we're launching right now. Six books were given away today, Charlie, from authors like Michael Card, his book, The Nazarene. Finding Jesus, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel, uh, Knowing God by His Names, fiction book from uh, Amir Sarfati, Operation Yoktan. We've had him on the program, What the Bible Says About Israel, and then finally excavating the evidence for Jesus, the archaeology and history of Christ and the Gospels. So all six of these books are going to be given to one lucky winner, Charlie. How do people uh, enter to win these? Well, all they really need to do, John, is uh, send us an email that tells us what listening to Land in the Book will do for you. Uh, it's as if they were writing this, sharing it with a friend. All right, include your mailing address in that email, letting us know here's what listening to the Land in the Book will do for you. And maybe you'll win these six books in our book blast. More on that as our segment unfolds. Right now, current events from the Middle East. Story number one, President Biden is wrapping up his trip to the Middle East, having visited Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and Saudi Arabia. How has his trip gone so far, and what specifically was he hoping to accomplish? Well, you know, John, one measure of success is imaging, and this trip focused a great deal on photo ops and symbolic gestures. Uh, For example, Israel awarded Biden their Presidential Medal of Honor, and the president, our president, also tried to focus on strengthening Israeli-Arab cooperation and building a coalition to help blunt Iran. He also talked about energy and human rights, though it's unclear what will actually come from those discussions. Uh, He's hoping to get countries in the Middle East to ramp up oil and gas production to help ease Europe's energy crisis and their dependence on Russia. Now, apparently, another goal was to shape discussions between Israel and the Palestinians to focus on President Biden's priorities for a future peace treaty. While much of what took place was only symbolic, there were some items that concerned Israel. Uh, These included the president's visit to Palestinian institutions in East Jerusalem, including Augusta Victoria Hospital on the Mount of Olives. While that doesn't sound threatening, it, it was designed to challenge Israel's claim to Jerusalem as the undivided eternal capital of the Jewish state. 
President Biden also pressured the interim government of Yair Lapid to make concessions to the Palestinians that previous Israeli administrations would have rejected, like having Palestinian Authority representation at the Allenby Bridge crossing with Jordan. Now, such concessions strengthened Palestinian claims to Jerusalem and to all the West Bank down to the Jordan River. I suspect President Biden will return home feeling as if most of his goals were met. He helped strengthen the interim Israeli prime minister, whose views most closely represent his own when it comes to negotiations with the Palestinians. He helped promote regional cooperation to blunt Iran, and he played to his own support base here at home by speaking about human rights in Saudi Arabia and appearing to pressure Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians. Now, of course, only time will tell how effective this trip was in terms of producing any lasting change. Well, Israel and Hezbollah have been issuing warnings to one another. What's the key point of conflict right now, and could this latest dispute lead to armed conflict? The key point of conflict right now centers around competing claims to a natural gas field about 60 miles off the coast of Israel and Lebanon, right on the border. Uh, The field is in Israel's part of the UN-recognized exclusive economic zone in the Mediterranean, but Lebanon and Hezbollah reject those borders. Now, with the high price of natural gas today, both countries see economic advantages in controlling that resource. Last month, Israel sent a drilling platform out at the site to begin drilling for natural gas. Hezbollah threatened to retaliate, and they launched four drones supplied by Iran toward the platform. The drones were shot down by Israel, and apparently none of them were armed. The message Hezbollah wanted to send was that they're capable of targeting the vessel and that future drones could carry missiles. So why would Hezbollah risk starting a war with Israel right now? Well, negotiations between Israel and Lebanon to resolve the competing maritime claims are actually progressing very well, and both countries believe the issue can be finalized soon. In fact, the Lebanese government criticized Hezbollah and said the launching of these drones was done without its consent. So it's possible Hezbollah was trying to frighten the workers and owners of the rig to get them to abandon the project. But at a time when Europe needs natural gas to replace their supply from Russia, well, that seems unlikely to happen. Hezbollah might have also been trying to shift the focus in Lebanon away from the part they played in the blast that destroyed Beirut's harbor. Uh, It's possible Iran also encouraged the move to remind Israel of their influence with Hezbollah and of Hezbollah's ability to launch drone attacks. Now, whatever the reason, any armed attack by Hezbollah will force Israel to respond militarily, and that could easily spiral out of control. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Welcome, by the way. Maybe you're just joining us midstream. This is a look at current events from the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, a moment ago, we are talking about Iran, but apparently they're also continuing their effort to cause conflict in other countries besides Lebanon. Uh, bring us up to date on what's been happening with Iran in that regard. You know, two items have surfaced in the past few weeks that point to Iran's continuing efforts to expand their impact on the region. Uh, The British announced the seizure of Iranian weapons en route to Yemen, including Iranian-made engines for cruise missiles and surface-to-air missiles. An analysis of those engines showed they were for cruise missiles with a range of nearly 700 miles. That's the range of the missiles that have been fired from Yemen against Saudi Arabia. Uh, These weapons are a clear violation of the U.N. arms embargo against Yemen. The amazing part of the announcement, though, is that the weapons were actually seized back in January, but their capture was hushed up. Apparently, the West didn't want word to get out while they were still negotiating with Iran over the nuclear deal. 
Uh, but the point here is that even as Iran was supposedly discussing ways to curtail their nuclear program, they were clearly violating another UN arms embargo. The second report on Iran came from Israel's defense minister, who highlighted a buildup of Iranian military forces in the Red Sea. Now, this expansion of naval vessels points to an increase in Iranian operations in a vital choke point for world commerce. Israel's defense minister called the move a direct threat to trade, energy, and the global economy. Iran has a plan to rebuild their own Islamic version of the ancient Persian Empire. Now, their goal is to extend their reach into the Mediterranean, to eliminate Israel, to push the U.S. from the Middle East, and to put a chokehold on world commerce. Uh, world leaders really need to pay less attention to what Iran is saying and more attention to what they're doing, especially there in the Red Sea. Well said. Well, conflicts within government, of course, are nothing new. But according to one scholar, evidence of such conflict has been found in a 3,500-year-old tablet discovered in Jerusalem. Tell us about this somewhat unusual discovery, Charlie. Yeah, well, this professor at the University of Haifa claims to have finally deciphered a 3,500-year-old stone tablet found actually more than a decade ago in Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, that places the writing of the tablet around the time of Israel's exodus from Jerusalem. So it's not an Israeli tablet. It's a Canaanite tablet. Well, according to the professor, the tablet was likely used by priests or other important figures to place a curse on the governor of the city. The 20-word inscription was written in a proto-Canaanite script, and the tablet includes the phrase, Cursed, cursed, you will surely die. And it singles out the governor of the city. Uh, the stone was found in the city of David near the Gihon Spring in an area identified as probably what was a temple. Now, if there's any hesitancy in identifying this find, it's the fact that the scholar chose to submit his findings to the press and to other popular media before submitting it to other scholars for further analysis and evaluation. So right now, we have to take his word on the dating of the inscription and on its interpretation. But John, if he's correct, then character assassination and fake news and bad press might have been around a lot longer than most people have imagined. All right. Thank you so much. And by the way, if you've got a question that you'd like to have addressed in our upcoming segment on Bible questions and answers, they're welcome anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. Right now, though, Charlie, we are in the middle of a book blast, something very special. How many books did we say were given away, Charlie? This is a six-book giveaway. That's an amazing number for this book blast. Yeah, and they're great books. From Michael Card, his devotional, The Nazarene. From Amir Sarfati, Fiction, Operation Yoketown. I've read the book. I'm dying to read the sequel, which is coming out this fall. What the Bible Says About Israel. Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, Titus Kennedy. We had him on just a few weeks ago on the broadcast. What the Archaeology and History of Christ and the Gospels truly say. And then a really interesting conversation, Knowing God by His Names, in the book by Dick Purnell. That's one of our giveaways in this book blast. And finally, Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. We enjoy Jennifer Rosner and her visit. Well, this is her book, one of the six we're giving away. Charlie, what do we need to include in an email uh, to enter and win these six books? Well, in addition to someone including their contact information, they just need to send an email that in essence, tells what listening to Land in the Book will do for you, as if they were sharing this with a friend to tell about the Land in the Book and the impact it can have on someone's life. Well, that sounds easy enough. If you'd like to enter our book blast, why not do so now with your email to thelandandthebook 
at moody.edu. Again, be sure to let us know, here's what listening to the land of the book will do for you or your friend, and be sure to include your shipping address. And uh, you might win as you enter the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie, uh, your devotional later on takes us where and with what focus? Well, we're going to start at the Herodium, uh, one of my favorite places, but we're going to look from there over to the hometown of Amos the prophet to realize uh, that there really are no laymen in God's work. All right, a full program today, and we're looking forward to getting your book blast entry at the land and the book at moody.edu. Common misconceptions with dubious biblical support. It all adds up to an urban legend. When it comes to the New Testament, there are lots of these urban legends. We're going to dig into a bunch of them next. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, always glad to hang out with you. Hey, here's an idea that'll get you thinking in the right direction about sharing Christ with a Jewish friend or neighbor. When it comes to sharing our faith, for many of us, it's not the how-to that we lack, it's the want-to. Beth Tavalon is with the Olive Tree Congregation. Beth, how can we find the passion and kindness we might be lacking to share Yeshua with a Jewish friend or coworker? I think having passion comes from our relationship with the Lord. And if we are lacking in our personal walk with Him, then we're not going to be passionate about the Lord. But if we're spending time in Scripture and we're spending time in prayer and we're really trying to keep our eyes focused on the Lord, then He's going to give us opportunities and we're going to be ready to share. And And the love that we have for the Messiah is going to come out and it can't be hidden under a bushel. We are passionate because of what He has done for us yeah. in our lives. So this is something we don't just crank up and, and manufacture in the uh, good works division inside our soul somewhere. It, this this comes, as you say, from having a real vibrant walk with Christ ourselves. Yes, and I will say, too, that it is also about being obedient. There was one time when I asked the Lord, should I share the gospel with this person? And I felt like he impressed on my heart, when would I ever say no to that question? Mm, when would I say no? Great thought. Beth Tablin with the Olive Tree Congregation joining us today with insights on the land and the book. David Croto is the Dean and Professor of New Testament and Greek for Columbia Biblical Seminary at Columbia International University. He has authored several books, including Tithing After the Cross, Urban Legends of the Old Testament, and Urban Legends of the New Testament, our focus today. Well, you know, we enjoyed our conversation with you so much last week looking at the Old Testament. We just had to have you back, David, so thanks for agreeing to return to the program. Absolutely, John. It's great to be back. All of us have made the mistake of misunderstanding a passage of Scripture or two. So how do you define an urban legend in the context of Scripture? Yeah, really there are two types of of urban legends. So an an urban legend is basically some sort of misunderstanding, something that's not really true, but it just gets circulated and circulated so much that people just kind of accept it as true without even really giving it much critical thought. When it comes to biblical urban legends— One is something that's just absolutely wrong. It's just not at all what the Bible is saying. The other one is like, well, that's partly true, but saying that and not giving more information is kind of misleading. So there there are really two kinds of urban legends. 
New Testament ideas and verses that maybe we've gotten wrong. Call them New Testament legends. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you to our conversation today with David Croteau on The Land and the Book. Another urban legend you suggest is our commonly held, expressed uh, notion that if you accept Jesus into your heart, you'll be saved. An urban legend because? Uh, Well, the proper response to the gospel is to believe in Christ and turn from your sins. That's the response to the gospel. But there are are a couple verses, specifically Revelation 3.20, that people have used to say, accepting Jesus into your heart is the proper response to the gospel. The problem is, Revelation 3.20 is not an evangelistic verse, even though it's used in a lot of tracts. When John writes, listen, I stand at the door and knock, anyone who hears my voice opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. That come into him, people will go, well, that's Jesus coming into your heart. But it's not coming into, like entering into something. It's coming up to someone. And it's not in the, like I said, it's not in the evangelistic context. He's talking to the church. These are Christians he is talking to. So he's talking about fellowship here. So then to say to someone after you shared the gospel, if you want to be saved, accept Jesus into your heart, that's just not what the New Testament says. It says, if you want to be saved, believe and turn from your sins. Mm -hmm. And so to summarize that with accept him into your heart is actually not the right response to the gospel, and it can be really confusing, especially to kids. And we usually use that with children. I I knew a guy, a student, who came into my office one day after I had taught through this, and he said one day he walked into his mother's room crying. He was like six years old. And she's like, honey, why are you crying? And he goes, well, I'm ready to be a Christian. She goes, well, that's great, but why are you crying? Well, because I'm ready for the surgery. She goes, what surgery? Well, the surgery to put Jesus into my heart. And she goes, oh, that's not what that means. He was so confused that he thought he was going to have to have a surgery in order to get saved because Jesus had to go into his heart. It's confusing, and it's not biblical terminology. He's professor of New Testament and Greek for Columbia Biblical Seminary at Columbia International University. Dr. David Croteau has written Urban Legends of the New Testament. Have you considered the fact that in writing this book, identifying some closely held beliefs as urban legends, some will see you as a troublemaker or worse. What's your response? Yeah, I've been told that I've ruined Christmas for people. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I can understand that. People see the title of the book, and some of them think that I'm going to try to undermine the New Testament. You know, when I, I've been in classes with teachers who basically say, this verse doesn't mean what you think it means, and then they just kind of move on. And they kind of like rip out your foundational understanding of key verses, but they never actually rebuild a true understanding. But see, I don't do that. While I might deconstruct what you think the passage means, I also then rebuild what the passage does mean mm-hmm. and talk about how it applies to your life. So I'm not, I'm not just picking a fight over issues that are unimportant to me. I'm trying to correctly divide the word of truth, correctly interpret Scripture, and in the meantime, kind of tearing down some of these things that just aren't what the Bible says. Another uh, urban legend that uh, a lot of folks believe, good works are optional for Christians. And uh, you take this one apart pretty handily. Yeah. You know, I think people, when they memorize uh, in Sunday school or Awana or whatever, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, wonderful verses. They memorize 2, 8, and 9, and then they stop. I've actually surveyed in in my time in teaching in higher education over a 1,000 students and asked if anyone had ever memorized Ephesians 2, 10. 
And only one student has ever raised their hand that at some point in their life they memorized Ephesians 2.10. But 2.10 is the continuation of the thought. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but for a purpose. And the purpose is for us to walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so the whole purpose of our salvation is not like fire insurance so we don't get to go to hell. The whole purpose of our salvation is that we are transformed by Christ so that we can live a life that brings honor and glory to him on earth. If it was just fire insurance, he might as well just take us once we get saved. But he's not done with us once he saves us. He changes us so we can live a life to bring honor and glory to him. In uh, Matthew's gospel, we come to an interesting story with Jesus, and he does say, let your, you know, let your right hand not know what your left hand is doing when it comes to your giving. And so then we have therefore drawn from that the idea that all giving must be done in secret. True or not true? And if so, biblically, how do you base your answer? Yeah, it's a great passage. It's, it's a great example also of paying attention to context. So in Matthew 6, the very first verse is the key verse to unlocking Jesus' following conversations on giving, on fasting, and on praying. And Matthew 6, 1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So Jesus there is talking about motivations. And that same passage in Matthew 6 says, don't pray to be seen by people. Does that mean praying in public is wrong? Every church service I've ever been to had prayer, and it was public prayer. So when, when Jesus talks about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's talking about the fact that look at your motivation. Why are you giving? Now, first of all, Jesus is actually quite funny. If you, if you think about it, it's impossible to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Hands don't even think. Now, I'll tell you, John, there was one time where my, my hands didn't communicate too well. I was getting out of my car, and I, my left hand was closing the door, and my right hand saw that the keys were still in the car. So as my left hand closed the door, my right hand reached for the keys, and I actually slammed the door on my hand, and my hand got stuck in the door, and the door was locked, and I was just stuck there for a few minutes until I was able to get someone to unlock it. But that's not what he's talking about. The idea is, what's the motivation for your giving? Now, if your motivation for giving is to be getting honor and glory from people, and you realize that that's what your motivation is, then yeah, give secretly to undo that motivation. But if that's not why you're motivated, and you give, and you get acknowledged, but it's not your motivation, that's not a problem. It's not a problem to be acknowledged for giving something if that's not why you're giving. And that's what Jesus is getting at, your motivations. What is the one New Testament urban legend that, in your opinion, is doing the absolute most damage to the body of Christ today? If you had to just pin it down to one. The most damage. You know, um, the ones that most concern me as far as damaging goes are the ones that talk about the gospel. Because sometimes the way that these legends manifest themselves, it actually undermines the gospel itself. And there are a handful of those in the book. I think the one I'd like to talk about is when Jesus talks about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's an example of a misunderstanding of a passage that really undermines the gospel, because the urban legend teaching says that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and in order for a camel to get through that, it had to take all of its stuff off, all the, the, the luggage that it might be carrying off, the bags and everything, get down on its knees, humble itself, lower its head, and crawl through this tiny little gate. And if that's really what that passage is about, what we're saying then is salvation is really hard for rich people, but if they work hard enough, 
they can do it. Mm. But that's not the gospel. And so the reality is there was never a gate called the eye of the needle around Jerusalem. There's no evidence for that. Um, the first time I can find that interpretation is about a thousand years after the New Testament. So that just wasn't the situation. Jesus, again, was speaking in hyperbole, exaggeration. He was talking about a literal camel and a literal eye of the needle. And what he's trying to say is salvation is impossible except from the work of God. That's the gospel. People can't work their way to heaven. When God moves upon your heart, are you able to go from being dead spiritually to alive spiritually? And so some of the legends, they preach well, they teach well, they sound really clever, but when you think through it, they actually undermine the gospel that is so precious to us Christians. Having exposed these uh, 40 urban legends, what then should be our next step? What do we do with this new knowledge? You know, the secret agenda I had to my book is to try to teach people hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, how to interpret the Bible. And so I, I sneak into every chapter references to correct approaches to interpreting the Bible. And my hope is that as people are reading the book and reading the chapters, they don't just learn information about specific passages, but they learn how to think through Scripture. And they learn, for example, they learn how to pay better attention to context. Don't read a verse in isolation, but read the verses around it. Read the chapters around it. And my, my real hope is that they learn how to interpret the Bible better, not just learn specific things about specific passages. That's Dr. David Croto, who has written Urban Legends of the New Testament, our guest today on The Land and the Book. Well, it's been a fascinating tour of some of these urban legends, and uh, you'll, you'll explore more of them for yourself as you uh, check out the book. A link at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Looking forward to another question and answer segment next with our host, Charlie Dyer. Stick around here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for hanging out with us today at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, I hope you're ready to answer a fresh set of Bible questions because, boy, we've got a lot of them today. I'm ready, John. All right. Before we get to them, though, quick question. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important? And what does it mean for you, Charlie? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue. It's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort. And it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more about Life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's get to our first question of the day from Lois in Exodus 9, verses 4 through 6. The Bible says the livestock of the Egyptians died in a plague. But then in verses 19 through 22, it says their livestock died in another plague. Didn't they all die in the first plague? Well, I think the key is that tiny phrase included in verse 3. God threatened to destroy all the livestock, it says, in the field. That is, any animals allowed out into the field that day would be killed, except for those of the Israelites. So when it says then in verse 6 that all the livestock of the Egyptians died, I think we need to assume it's referring to all the livestock that had been left out in the field. 
any livestock that was in barns or pens that day would have been spared. And I believe that's also why then in verse 19, when virtually the same warning is repeated, it says any animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field would die. And I suspect a number of Egyptians started paying attention to what God was saying and were bringing their animals in from the fields. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, where we're looking at questions that have come into our inbox. Yours is welcome anytime at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Kathy says, I'm reading through the book of Psalms, and in Psalm 78, verse 49, it says that God sent a band of destroying angels, a deputation of angels of evil to the Israelites. Are they fallen angels? What does this verse mean? Does God sick bad angels on his people after a certain point of willful disobedience? Well, and I think we have to look at the context. Psalm 78 is poetically tracing Israel's history from the time of Moses to the time of David. And verse 49 is part of that section where the psalmist talks about the plagues God actually sent against Egypt. I think the best way to understand this verse is to see the psalmist using the word angel in its original sense of messenger rather than as a supernatural being. In this particular case, the psalmist is saying God unleashed a band of destroying messengers sent from him against the Egyptians. And then the psalmist lists the four messengers God sent against Egypt, their anger, wrath, indignation, and hostility. In other words, in poetical fashion, the psalmist personifies these elements of God's judgment as if they had been directly sent to carry out his command to despoil and judge Egypt. Uh, The four words are in apposition to messenger or angel, which tells me they're the emotions God sent against Egypt. So I don't believe he's picturing them as literal angels as we might first think. Mary says, in the account of the demons going into the herd of pigs, were these pig herders Jewish? Some commentaries say these men were Jews from the tribe of Gad and that the area they were in was called the Gadarenes. They suggest these herders, being Jews, We're disobeying God's law by doing this. I don't understand. Yeah, and I start by saying I'm pretty confident the pig herders were not Jewish. Uh, Now, there is a textual issue over the exact spot where the miracle took place. Uh, There are three different locations that sound very similar, but were different places. Gadara, Gerasa, and Gergesa. Now, of those three, two of them were actually uh, part of the area called the Decapolis, literally 10 cities that were Hellenistic pagan cities, not part of Judea or part of Galilee. Uh, the third potential site, Gergesa, was a Jewish village, and I think that's actually near where the miracle took place. But just to the south of that, just over the rise on the hill where the swine would have been feeding, was the town of Hippus, the northernmost of the cities of the Decapolis. So no matter which of the three towns uh, is the actual place for the miracle, uh, the exact location is where the herd of pigs would have been, and it was right next to this area of the Decapolis where there were Gentiles, and the Gentiles are the ones who kept the pigs. Now, finally, that other part of your question, while Gadara might have been uh, at the very extreme end of the tribal allotment of Gad, and that's not absolutely clear, uh, there's no indication that the name of the town was derived from the name of Gad. It could have come from other Hebrew words that had the idea of great or large, and it might have come from a language other than Hebrew. So it's too much of a stretch to connect that event to the tribe of Gad. A question about Deuteronomy 17, verse 9, which reads, So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. Can you please explain the duties of the Levites in this verse? Yeah, and I think one of the roles of the Levites, as this passage is indicating, was to help explain the details of the Mosaic law, especially in 
complex criminal cases or cases that could involve capital punishment or something that people didn't fully understand. Uh, In verse 8, Moses specifically says this appeal process involves a case that is too difficult for you to decide. You know, so the facts of the case either weren't clear cut or the ones presiding didn't know how the law applied. So they were to go to the temple or the tabernacle and specifically ask how the points of law were to be decided based on what God had said in his word. Now, that was necessary because there weren't widespread copies of the word of God. A copy was kept at the tabernacle and later the temple, and the priests and Levites devoted their lives to studying it, and that's why they were to be consulted when more difficult points of law arose. Now, in a secular sense, that's what we do today when judges are asked to render decisions based on specific points of law during a trial. Your question is welcome anytime when you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Mark says, I listen to your podcast every week, and it's great. I've been to Israel three times and like how your podcasts bring back memories and teach me so much. Here's his question. He says, I'm reading the book, Who Owns the Land? And I wonder if Charlie has written an update since much has changed since it was originally written. Yeah, I wish I had written an update to it, but uh, I can't. Uh, The book was originally written by Stanley Ellison. Now, he died, and Tyndale asked me to update it, and I did. Unfortunately, I don't own the copyright to the work. That's owned by Ellison's heirs, and I'm not even sure who actually has that copyright, or if they'd want another revision. And I'm not sure if a publisher would be interested. Anyway, in light of all that, I have no plans to revise the book, but you're absolutely right. An update is definitely needed. Sandy says, I'm wondering about Psalm 42 where it mentions waterfalls. She says, are there really waterfalls in Israel? Is the deep calls to deep supposed to be positive or negative? I struggle with migraines. When I'm seeking God in that pain, this verse is very comforting. I have a God that hears me when I am in the depth of the pain and depression. Is that my deep calling out to God's deep? Is it like a communion moment? Well, I'll start by saying this. There really are waterfalls in Israel. And I believe the psalmist had a particular one in mind. You know, in that context, he says he was uh, being taken out of the land. He he mentions uh, the region of the Jordan and then Mount Hermon, and then one particular hill that was part of Mount Hermon. So we know he's in the far north of Israel, probably having just passed the ancient city of Dan, the traditional northern boundary of the land, and he's heading into captivity. And right in that area, less than two miles from Dan, is the Bonius Waterfall. And as you walk nearby, you hear the roar of the waterfall before you actually see it. Now, it's not like Niagara Falls, but it's still an impressive sight. And in verse 7, the psalmist describes the problems and troubles that he seems to have that are are engulfing him. And he compares them to the roaring water cascading down into that pool below. Now, in context, it's a negative feeling he's experiencing. He's feeling overwhelmed and engulfed by his problems. But then he pauses and interjects a reassuring thought in the very next verse as he remembers that God's loyal love was still present during the day and God's song would also be with him, he says, through the night. And knowing God was still with him is what allowed him to voice his prayer to God for deliverance. Tamara says, a few months ago, you suggested an atlas that would be helpful when studying the Bible. I've been unable to find that reference. Could you kindly remind me again? Yeah, and there's a number of great Bible atlases out there, but the one I recommended was the New Moody Atlas of the Bible by Barry Beitzel, B-E-I-T-Z-E-L. That's the one I actually keep on my shelf right by my desk. Okay. From Louise, this question, God sent a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard Eden so that man could not re-enter. So is Eden still here, but our eyes are veiled so that we can't see it? Why else would it need to be guarded? 
Well, I think the best answer might be to assume that Edom was a literal place, and it was, that was destroyed, though, during the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. So it only needed to be guarded until that time. Now, the tree of life is transferred to the New Jerusalem, which is also referred to as the paradise of God in Revelation chapter 2 and in chapter 22. You know, I have a thought that as you listen to Charlie Dyer answering these questions, one or two come to your mind. Listen, you can always get your question to us at the land and the book at moody.edu. Give Charlie a few days to get to it, and you'll have a personalized answer, and we might just use your question on the air. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next right here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger with our teacher, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, you know, when we think of pastors or missionaries, we often hear them speak of a time and experience where they felt the call. There's a certain sense of calling when it comes to Christian work, but that's not anything new. It goes back to Old Testament days, does it not? Indeed it does. And uh, we also think of kings and priests and prophets being the ones God called, but uh, God called Laman to do his work. And we're going to look at one of those today. It's a character we're going to focus on in just a moment in Charlie's devotional. First, though, this Holy Land experience from David Webster, someone who's been to the Holy Land and was kind enough to share how that shaped his life. Listen to this. My name is David Webster. I had the enormous privilege to go to Israel. It was such an amazing trip. I'm an artist, so I cannot describe. It's really indescribable, but I think my biggest impression was when I went there and when I saw Jerusalem for the first time, I actually felt like I was coming home. And people have asked, what's your favorite part? I, I had so many favorite parts, but the one thing it did all the time was surprise me all the time in, in different ways, in ways I didn't expect. And one big thing I shared with the group that I went with, a wonderful group of believers, and, and you know, it was, it was such a bonding and a family time. And I believe, and my wife didn't get to go, and, and, and that was a struggle, but she knew that was a hard passion for me to go. And she said to me, I, I totally believe this is true. She said, Dave, you know, if I don't get to go now, I will get to go someday, which is true for every believer. Well, that is certainly a true statement and a powerful testimony as well. Now, the segment that so many people have emailed us to say that they appreciate so much, it's Charlie's devotional. I'll get out of the way and let you add it, Charlie. Oh, thanks, John. Okay, stay with me. We're almost to the top. I love climbing to the top of the Herodium, Herod the Great's volcano-shaped fortress southeast of Bethlehem, but my knees and my lungs keep telling me I'm not getting any younger. All right, we reached the top, and we can talk more about the importance of this place in a minute, but right now, I want to head to the other side for a view to the south. Off to our left, you can see the start of the Judean wilderness. Look how quickly the cultivated fields stop and the rugged, barren hills begin. If you look closely, you might even be able to see some shepherds caring for their flocks. This is the area where David would have tended the flocks of his father, Jesse. But now, look to the south. See that village on the hillside about a mile away? That's the Arab village of Tekua. 
and it preserves the name of the biblical town that once sat on the site, Tekoa. Not familiar with it? Well, let me give you a thumbnail sketch of the town and the important role it played in Israel's history. The town first came to prominence in the time of King David. 2 Samuel 14 records a plan by Joab, David's military commander, to reconcile David to his son Absalom. He does this by summoning a wise woman from Tekoa to present a heart-wrenching tale to David of a family torn apart by strife. David saw through the ruse, but still reconciled with his son. But why did Joab choose a woman from Tekoa? Well, Joab's family was from Bethlehem, as was David, and Tekoa was a little less than five miles from there, far enough away that David was unlikely to know the woman, but close enough that perhaps Joab knew the family. The next two appearances of Tekoa in the Bible highlight its importance. In 2 Chronicles 11, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, fortified Tekoa. And in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat led his army out to the wilderness of Tekoa to face an enemy threatening Jerusalem. Both accounts highlight the strategic nature of this town. A roadway stretched from Bethlehem through Tekoa into the Judean wilderness. It reached the Dead Sea at Engedi. From there, the road went south to the region of Masada before crossing the Dead Sea at the tongue of land that extends across from modern-day Jordan. The roadway has been called the back door to Jerusalem. Certainly, Rehoboam knew the importance of fortifying Tekoa to serve as his deadbolt lock to protect his country against invaders. And Jehoshaphat became deeply concerned when an army threatened to come through the back door to reach Jerusalem. Tekoa wasn't just a hick town on the edge of the wilderness. It was a strategic town that was crucial to Judah's defense. It's no accident that when the prophet Jeremiah announced the impending attack against Jerusalem, he did so in chapter 6 by calling on the people to blow a trumpet in Tekoa. And that leads to the third major place in the Bible where Tekoa can be found, the book of the prophet Amos. Amos begins his message by telling us he was among the sheepherders from Tekoa. This was his hometown. Now, I've heard people describe Amos as the backwoods preacher who came to town, the country bumpkin who showed up in the city, the hick from the sticks sent by God to preach to the sophisticated sinners of Samaria. But frankly, I don't think any of those descriptions are correct. We've already seen that the town straddled an important roadway into Judah. It experienced a steady stream of outside travelers who came through with news and information. More than that, Amos wasn't just an underling stuck in the desert with the flocks. The words Amos used to describe himself in his book give us a far different perspective. He didn't just take care of the flocks, he owned them. Later, Amos calls himself a herdsman, indicating he also owned cattle. Finally, he says he was a nipper of sycamore figs. Well, sycamore figs don't grow in Tekoa. The closest place where they grew was Jericho, which belonged to the northern kingdom of Israel. So Amos didn't just stay in Tekoa. His work took him out of town and likely even out of his own country. If he were around today, we would call him a successful businessman with diverse holdings and sometimes requiring international travel. Not exactly the picture of a bumpkin or a rube. But that leads to one additional thing Amos says about himself. When he was criticized by those who rejected his message, who told him to go back to Judah and earn his money as a professional prophet there, Amos responded by saying, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, 
But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos was not a professional prophet, nor was he the disciple of a prophet, the so-called sons of a prophet, who followed that prophet around to learn from him. Today, we would call Amos a layman. He wasn't someone who earned his living serving God full-time. And that's what I want you to remember as you look back at Tekoa. God did have full-time servants that he called to minister at the Temple of Jerusalem or to serve as prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. But God also called others to serve him, people from all walks of life, including a professional businessman like Amos. Amos wasn't a full-time prophet, but he was obedient to God's call on his life. He was God's hand-picked servant for that hour. As we begin walking down the Herodium to our bus, let me ask you a question. Has God called you to be his spokesperson? Have you ever considered the possibility that God might want you to be his voice, to speak for him? It could, like Amos, be internationally. But God might want you to be his voice to your neighbor across the street or to the four-year-olds at your church. It might be to a colleague at work or the checkout clerk at the grocery store. God has called all of us to be his voice to a needy world. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, as found in the New Living Translation. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? Amos is a model to all of us. He's a reminder that God has called us all to serve him. Our place of ministry might differ, but he expects each of us to share his message to a needy world. Remember, Amos wasn't a professional prophet, but when God called him to serve, Amos obeyed. Boy, I love that thought, being the voice of God in a needy world. And that question, Charlie, are we obedient to God's call on our lives? Yeah, that's rather soul-searching. Well, we've reached the end of today's edition of The Land and the Book. Could I ask a favor of you before we sign off? Would you share us with a friend? You know, we don't have any big advertising budget. It's word of mouth. So if you appreciate Charlie's ministry, appreciated that devotional you just heard on the life of Amos, why not share us with a friend? And the best way to do that is to go to our website, thelandandthebook.org, and link to our Facebook page. Or you can share that website with a friend. They can listen to the program that you've just heard right there on Line at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. I want to say thanks to Dan Anderson, the co-producer and technical gentleman that puts this whole thing together. I want to say thanks to Charlie Dyer, our host and teacher, for his insight and patience with us. And thanks to you as well for listening. See you back next week here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. 